Suppose you had a friend who was living under tremendous pressure. They were facing opposition at work because of their commitment to Jesus, and in their church there were threats from false teachers, coldness, and immorality. You knew they needed comfort. What book of the Bible would you tell them to read? This is Truth Encounter, a program committed to helping you get to know the true Christ as revealed in Scripture. What book would you tell your friend to read? I bet you didn't choose the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Mention the apocalypse and words like fear and dread come to mind. Hardly a comfort. But let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, and discover what John's first century audience discovered in this incredible letter. Our culture is enamored with power, from Exxon trying to get us to put a tiger in our tank. They even try to sell you razors by accelerating, you know, kind of past the speed of sound or past the speed of light. I mean, that's the last thing in the world I need when I'm trying to shave in the morning to have a razor that's faster than the speed of sound. But that's the way they try to sell us the power. We're enamored with power. As I look at the world invention, there's not a week that goes by. Like if you're in the brokerage business, man, you just ride a roller coaster. You notice that? One week you're riding high and everything's really great there. And all of a sudden a catastrophe happens. Like the Asian markets start crashing and everything's in the tank. And you begin to ask yourself the question, do you think there's anyone at the throttle? Do you think there's anyone that's driving this thing? You know, do you think there's anyone that's really in control? That's the issue that's raised. As you go through your life, you're going to answer that question many different ways. You're going to ask yourself, is there really someone who's in control? If so, who is it? When the book of Revelation was written, Domitian was the Roman emperor. And Domitian decided that he was in control. He decided that he was at the throttle of the Roman Empire, ruling from the capital city of Rome. He had legions that that had crushed all the opposition. And he decided to enthrone himself up as God, very much like Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes decided that he would be God manifest. And he went to the temple in Jerusalem and set up his statue in the form of Zeus. And he demanded that everyone worship him. The same thing's taking place, only now the temple of Jerusalem is gone. It's about 94 A.D. In 70 A.D., the whole temple complex was mowed down by the Romans. They had every right to say, we're enthroned. We're the power of the universe. Even this Israelite Yahweh God couldn't stop us. We destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. And so Domitian, the Roman emperor, decided that he would put his divine head on all their coins. He decided that there would be several times a year that you would have to meet in his temples devoted to him, and you would have to bow before him. Most of the empire just took it casually and they would go through the routine and they would give the emperor his almighties and who cared and go on with the rest of their life. If they were polytheists anyway, who cared whether you added another god or not? But there was one fledgling group of people. They were a group of people that started to respond to a message that was going like grass fire all over the empire. It was a message that said that there was a man who had conquered death. It's a message that said that there was a man that hung on a cross, a cursed criminal cross, but that he didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead. It's hard to reproduce the enthusiasm and the excitement that was taking place as throughout the Roman Empire, people in homes, people in businesses, people in various walks of life were sharing. They were gossiping the gospel everywhere. 
And so that almost everywhere you went in the Roman Empire by the 90s, just about 60 years after Jesus lived, anywhere you went in the empire, you would find these small groups. In fact, sometimes they weren't even so small, but they were beginning to worship Jesus. They were beginning to declare that he was the Lord. Not a kingdom of this world, but an ultimate kingdom, a kingdom of heaven. And they had leaders, they had apostles. And the very last apostle, the very last eyewitness to the resurrection of the original 12 was a man named John. And Domitian decided that John's influence in the, the province, the Roman province of Asia, was too strong. Evidently, John was like an overseer for several churches, at least seven churches, which are the seven churches that he writes to in Asia Minor. But it's possible he was really kind of a guide, a shepherd to many more churches, because Laodice, uh, Hierapolis isn't mentioned, and Colossae, that we just studied the book of Colossians, isn't mentioned. But John evidently is having an incredible impact in what is now the eastern part of Turkey. And so Domitian decides he's going to stop this. And so he has John arrested. And the guy's in his, probably in his late 80s or his early 90s. This guy's an old codger by now. But he still has the power of the Spirit upon him so much so that he's shaken up the Roman emperor. So the Roman emperor has him and puts him on a desolate island. A very small, little tiny island called Patmos out there in the Mediterranean Sea. And he thinks that that's going to take care of everything. Because he's the power. He's the almighty. He's the one that everyone's going to worship. He's going to crush this new upstart little fledgling sect. And as we open to Revelation chapter 1 today, we're introduced to this John. This John is on the island of Patmos. And he's beginning to tell us about this tremendous struggle that he sees going on. What we have in the book of Revelation is we have the struggle going on between John, the churches in Asia, the churches throughout the Roman Empire that believed in Jesus as Lord versus this Domitian, this Roman emperor that believes that he's Lord. From the first century perspective, you would swear that Domitian is going to win. I mean, this is like Mike Tyson fighting a, a kindergartner, it looks like from a human standpoint, but we're going to find out that God was on the side of the great apostle John. We're going to pick up our study of the book of Revelation with Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Remember, we're blessed if we read it out loud and if we obey it. Look what it says. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So we have a letter. The book of Revelation is not only a prophecy, but it's also important for us to notice here that it's taking the form of a letter. One of the great things in the first century is that the apostles took the time to write letters. I want to encourage you, dads, moms, sons and daughters, in the midst of a technological tremendous transition, don't forget to write letters. Don't forget to write letters to those that you love. Don't forget to write letters to those that you need to keep in touch with. Email's a great thing, but don't just write email. Write stuff that has a little bit more permanence to it. Because this is a very beautiful thing that, that's been modeled down through the centuries, believers writing to one another. A letter is a very personal thing. It's from a, a person that loves the other person in this context. It's a pastor writing back to his people. And John is writing to a very specific group of believers. So as we go through the book of Revelation, I want you to always keep in mind that the first audience that he spoke to were a group of believers in churches just like Bible Church or just like some of the other churches that you go to. 
So whatever we might figure out about the book of Revelation, let's not forget that originally in the first century, the Spirit of God anointed John, the beloved disciple, one of the intimate early apostles, to write this very personal letter to comfort these seven churches that are in the jaws of some real high-pressure persecution. So it's John the apostle to the seven churches in Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is a common introduction. We've had in the book of Colossians, Paul began almost all of his letters like this, and John is following that same precedence. In Greek, when you greeted somebody, you would say greetings, and you would use a word that would say kaira. Kaira would be greetings. John and Paul both changed that common hi, or kaira, to charis, and charis meant grace. It's very interesting that the Spirit of God, even with a greeting, this is just the dear so-and-so part of the letter, but even in just giving that little brief dear so-and-so, our apostles remind us of the bedrock of our faith, grace. Grace to you. My heart's desire for every one of you is for you to receive grace. What is grace? It means that every single one of you don't deserve to be here in the family of God, do you? And I don't. None of us could read the Bible long enough. None of us could be obedient long enough. None of us ever could earn this place in heaven, could we? And yet we're here today. I want you to think back, if you can remember a time in your life where Jesus came and met you personally. If you can remember a time in your life when Jesus made it really clear to you that he died on the cross for your sins. And that he rose again the third day. And you remember the Spirit of God. You might not remember the exact date. But you know for sure in your life there's come a time when you've responded to that precious Jesus good news. You know what I'm talking about? Then you've received grace. You've received grace. You've been invited to a banquet. You've been invited to a meal. You've been invited to an eternal celebration that you can't do one thing to earn. All you can do is enjoy it. That's what grace is all about. Grace is the thief on the cross saying, please, Jesus, remember me. What can the thief do? I mean, his hands are nailed. He can't do anything with his hands. What can he do with his feet? Can he go anywhere for God? Can he do anything for God? No. His feet are nailed to the cross. He's just spread-eagled on a a gibbet that's going to kill him. And yet he looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be what? Today you'll be with me. That's grace. And I pray that every one of you have entered in to that joyous grace. Boy, I'm thankful for that. Because that's the heartbeat of the word of God. And that's what I pray the Holy Spirit will more and more place upon my heart. Grace to you. If you're here today and you feel like, I don't have a right to be here. You know, God's kind of surprised that I showed up. I want you to realize he's not. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been. No matter what performance that you might have done for him or not done for him, God is here to give you grace today. Anyone can come to his son at any moment. And when you understand this grace, what happens to you? Then you receive peace. What John does here is bring together a Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting. The Greek greeting was greetings, kare, and he used charis, which is grace. The Hebrew greeting that you all know really well is shalom. In Israel today, they still use shalom everywhere you go, shalom. In Hebrew, what it means is it's, it's a promise that the kingdom of God's going to come and that kingdom of God's going to bring well-being to your life. The kingdom of God's going to bring your life together. 
The kingdom of God is going to bring peace to your life. John brings together the heartbeat of both the Old Testament promises and the New Testament just in a greeting. He says, peace be to you. I praise God for you. Now, where does this grace and peace come from? Notice where he says, grace and peace be to you. From him, and look at this title, from him who is and who was and who is to come. Man, that is a strange way to address a letter of telling you who it's from. Look at this weird phrase here. It says, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Can anybody tell me another time in the Bible where they use time as a title for God? They use the kind of a designation of time to stand for the Almighty God. Exodus chapter 3. Remember in the burning bush incident? The Lord told Moses to take off his shoes. He was on the holy ground. Moses asked him, who are you? And how did God respond? He said, I am that I am. Everybody say that. He responded, I am that I am. And when that is translated into the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it comes over with this exact expression that I am the existing one. What does that mean? It means that God lives in an eternal present. You see, for us, if you ever stop and think about it, we remember the past and we look forward maybe to the future, but all we have is just this present, just a split second and it's gone and then it moves into the past. But what the Apostle John is telling us right here at the beginning of this book is that we worship a God that can pull us into the eternal present because he's in eternal present. Instead of just flashes of present existence, we can have an existence that will last forever and ever and ever. And to really get that across to us, he says, God is not only the one who is, the one that eternally exists in the present, but look what else he is. It says, I am the one who is and who was. God was totally in control in the past. God is the one who was controlling history from the time of the creation all the way through the present. That's what it means. I am the one who was. You see, I can't say I am the one who was. Man, before 1949, I wasn't here. Before some of you, before 1975, before 1980, before 1990, you didn't exist except in the heart and the mind of God. But this being here can say, I have always been. I'm the one who was. I'm the one who is, but I'm the one who was in the past. But I love this next part. He says, and I am the one, look at the next part, the future. He says, I am the one who was and who is to come. That's what this whole book is about. It's about the coming of God. God is the one who's going to come into the future. That's where our hope comes. The whole book of Revelation is saying that we're not going to always live in this time where God's presence is invisible in the earth, where we see the manifestations of his kingdom, but we can't see him face to face. The book of Revelation talks about an unveiling. The title of the book is a disclosure of Jesus Christ. And so what it means, who is to come, the book of Revelation is going to tell us that God's always been existing in the past. God is always existing in the present. But you can bet everything that your destiny depends upon on the fact that he's going to come. He will come. And that's his name. He is the one who is. He's the one who was. He's the one who is certainly going to come. That's his name. And that's who this letter is from. John is writing on behalf of the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. He's also writing from the seven spirits before his throne. Now, this is a tough one. John is getting a glimpse of heaven. And it uses, remember we talked about signifying or picturing this? 
And somehow he pictures seven spirits. Later on in chapters 2 and 3, it pictures these as the seven eyes of God. It pictures them as seven brightly burning lamps. What in the world is he talking about? The seven spirits of God. Well, in the book of Revelation, seven and also in Jewish thinking, like the Jewish Sabbath, the year of Jubilee is a multiple of seven. The number seven in Jewish thinking and Old Testament thinking is a number of completion. So we're talking about the perfect spirit, the completed one, the one who brings everything together. But remember we said that the book of Revelation is like the Mississippi with all the tributaries coming together? I want you to turn to a portion of scripture that you're probably not that familiar with. Turn back in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 4. And we'll see how the Old Testament can help us to figure out what Daniel's talking about. Zechariah chapter 4 brings together some very important imagery. This is in the day of Zerubbabel. It's in the time of the getting ready for the children of Israel to return back home after being in captivity. And in Zechariah chapter 4, it talks about a golden lampstand. If you look at chapter 4, verse 2, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right and the bowl and the other on its left. So we have, like you all can think in Jewish circles, you have kind of a lampstand that you're all used to the candelabra. This one has seven lights on it. And I asked the angel who talked to me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I don't. He's dishonest, like we don't know what they are either. And often the word of God will will instruct us. Look what it says. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Now I want you to see the connection that's made. It talks about seven lights. Revelation will use the idea of the seven spirits and relate them to the seven lights, also the seven eyes. Zechariah presents this idea of the seven lights on a candelabra, and then it interprets. When we ask the angel, what does this all mean? He gives us this verse. How many of you have ever sung the song, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. You can't hardly be raised in an evangelical church without, you know, learning that old song that they did in a children's musical, all right? But this is where it comes from, Zechariah chapter 4. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. What does Zechariah do? It brings together an imagery of seven lights, seven lamps that are brightly shining, and it relates that to the spirit of God. That's our hint. So as we turn back to the book of Revelation... And we read, and from the seven spirits before his throne, we can see that this is a representation of the Holy Spirit. We have God the Father, who's given the title, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who certainly will come. And then his spirit, God the Father, the King, his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is before him. Someone that stands before a throne is at, at the king's beck and call. The spirit of God and the word of God and in our lives is the one who affects the will of God. I want every one of you not to be afraid of the Holy Spirit. I want you to respect him. I want you to love him. But I don't want you to withdraw away from him and and act as if he doesn't exist. The Holy Spirit is the most precious gift that the Lord Jesus gives to those that believe on him. The Holy Spirit's the one that can take this time and cause us to really immediately connect with God. 
The Holy Spirit's the one that can encourage you. The Holy Spirit's the one that can comfort you. The Holy Spirit's the one that can help you to be convicted of that sin that would destroy your life. The Holy Spirit's the one that will go with you at school all this week and that will go with you at work all this week. He is the Spirit who is before the throne of God. He's there to execute the Father's will and he goes out into all the world to bring you life, to bring you light, to bring you direction. It's an incredible thing. And I want you to know that the book of Revelation comes to us from God the Father, but it also comes to us from the complete, the perfect spirit, the spirit that's working in our lives to bring us into his completion, into his perfection. And I want you to relish that. I want you to enjoy that. You say, well, Dave, I'm not sure the Holy Spirit's in my life. Well, then you need to go back and ask yourself, have you received the Son? Because the New Testament teaches us that when we believe in the Son, that it's the Holy Spirit that enters our life and seals us with eternal life. That's what Ephesians 1 says. The Spirit of God is the down payment and the seal of our eternal gift of salvation. Once we've received Christ, it's very important for us to submit to the Spirit's guidance. As he affects the Father's will and the Son's will in our life, it's very important for us to be obedient to him. We need to be growing in our sensitivity to him so that we don't quench him. In your Christian life, as you grow, you should start developing an ear, an inner ear for the Spirit. That you should start as you read the Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit related to this written revelation. He gives you insight and illumination and, and he applies this heartbeat of God's revelation in your life. And as you get in and hearing the voice of God in the, in the word, as you go out into life, you have an incredibly sharp sensitivity to what the seven spirits of God are saying in your life. Very, very important to become sensitive to that. Don't bucket. Don't reject that spirit because he can be grieved even in a believer's life. He can be quenched in a believer's life and then you'll no longer feel that, that burning insight that comes from him or that, that pulling back from evil. The book of Revelation has a very balanced view of our triune God. There's God the Father. Now we have the Holy Spirit, the perfect spirit, represented by seven, who is before the throne of God, executing all the commands. The Holy Spirit's the executive branch of the Trinity, you might say. He's the executive branch. He executes the orders of God the Father in the world today. And the Holy Spirit today is going out into all the world, bringing people to himself. It's an incredible day to live in. Those are the seven spirits that are before the throne of God. But notice we have, we have the second person of the Trinity introduced in verse 5. God the Father is one who is and who was and who is to come. God the Holy Spirit is the seven spirits before his throne. And from Jesus Christ. And from the Savior and the Messiah. You need to ask a big question. Can you trust this Jesus Christ? Look what John says. When he mentions the name Jesus Christ, he mentions this. He is the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. And he's the rulers of the kings of the earth. I want you to stop and think, and I want you to ask yourself, do you believe that about him? Let's take, first of all, the faithful witness. What is a faithful witness? A witness is someone who has seen and heard something, experienced something, and they tell the truth about it. Like if you're in a courtroom and you were the witness to an accident, you get up on the chair and you give your account of what happened in the accident. And if you're a true witness, if you're a faithful witness, then what you say is accurate. 
Jesus Christ in John's writing, the Apostle John's writing, like as you study through the book of John, the Gospel of John, Jesus will constantly say, I have come to do the will of my Father. I have come to tell you what my Father's like. A very famous verse, very famous verses that a lot of you have memorized will give you an insight into the kind of witness that Jesus gave. Remember these verses? Say them with me. Let not your heart, say them with me, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now you've heard those words over and over and over again, so much so that it just doesn't do hardly anything to you. But I want you to stop and think. Here's a human being at the Last Supper with 12 of his friends. And he says, I don't want you to be worried, guys. I don't want you to be all stressed out. I don't want you to be uptight about things. They say, why not? Man, the whole, all of Jerusalem's out to get you. This whole thing is caving in. Our movement's about ready to be plunged into total chaos. You're telling us not to be stressed out? So you're saying, what, what do you mean we shouldn't be stressed out? And Jesus responds, in my dad's home, there's many different rooms. That's really the way he talked in Greek. In, in my dad's home, there are many different rooms. If that's not the way that the father's house was laid out, I would have told you that. And I'm going to go back to my dad's house. And when I'm getting back to my dad's house, I'm going to get your room ready for you because I want you to come and live with me forever and ever and ever. Now, someone that talks like that, like if one of your kids suddenly starts talking like that, in their teenage years, we probably have some serious problems. Right? What are they claiming? They're claiming that they used to live in heaven with God the Father. They're saying they know the whole layout of the heavenly thing. And then they say they can prepare a place for us to go and live there. People that talk like that are out of their head. Unless it's true and they really are the Son of God. And what John is affirming here is that Jesus was a faithful witness. What it's saying is you can count upon his witness. One of the biggest decisions you're going to have to ever make in your life. The young people here as they go out into college and go out into their careers will be exposed to a lot of other faiths, a lot of other religions. And it's very possible some of them will drift away. Some of you adults this week are going to go out and be exposed. And some of the kids will be exposed to alternative ways of thinking. Now, what I want you to always remember is that no matter what you believe, you are depending upon somebody's witness. If you believe, well, there's a million different ways to get to heaven, you can go many different ways, and you have your way, and I have my way, and that's the way you believe, then I want you to stop and think, who are you depending upon for that advice? Who are you trusting in for that advice? Because there's someone, it might be an anthropology teacher at college, It might be a sociology teacher or prof that you learned. It might be a comparative religion professor at Harvard. You take your pick. It might be you might go over to Tibet and sit down with some guru and and sit there in the middle of the, the mountains. And you might have some inner light. Well, that will be your witness. And I want you to think hard because in a split second of time, when you go ready to go into eternity, one split second out of physical life, then you'll find out whether you believe the right person. That's what faith is about. And nobody on earth can escape from living on that faith commitment. The scientist that says, well, I don't believe there's anything out there. I think we're just stuff. I think I'm just a brain, kind of a blob up here in my head. When the electrical signals go off, that's it. That scientist, he believes the witness of a materialist that this is all there is. 
That scientist that believes that it's flying in the face of thousands of years. Hardly anybody has consistently maintained that kind of a position. But it is one position. And it's built upon a witness. Somebody saying that's the way it is. From the bottom of my soul, my brothers and sisters, as I live my years, and as I read about different testimonies, as I look at human nature, the big question I ask, did Jesus tell the truth? Those who follow him or, or sometimes operate in his name do a lot of crazy things. You can use the crazy things that the church has done in church history all you want. You can do that in any system of thought. But the big issue you need to come to grips with is not whether there was hypocrisy in the church you were raised, not whether or not you got mixed up by some pastor who let you down. That's not even the issue when it comes to eternity. The issue is, did Jesus tell the truth? Is he a faithful witness? And I want to go on record. I believe with all my heart that Jesus was a faithful witness. Before Pontius Pilate, when Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes, I am a king. Was Jesus telling the truth? You bet. In fact, Jesus said, you know, if I, if I desired, I could call legions. And they would come to my beck and call. Do you believe that? That was a faithful witness. In other words, Jesus was the king of kings as he stood before the Roman authority, Pilate, and he gave a faithful witness. First Timothy 6 says, Jesus gave a good confession before Pontius Pilate. He declared who he was. It was totally the truth. And I, I just, I want you to get that. We're getting down to bare bones. I don't care what church you're affiliated with. I don't care whether you've been baptized backwards in swiftly flowing Jordan water or whether you've been baptized forward in the running water. I don't care what you've experienced religiously. The bottom line is, do you accept the faithful testimony of Jesus? The second thing it says about him is what we learn in Colossians. He's the firstborn from the dead. I not only believe in Jesus because he's a truthful witness. He's a witness that I can count on, I can rely upon. But I also believe in him because I don't know anyone else that said he was going into the grave and he was coming back. Houdini used to go over Niagara Falls and go over in barrels. They they used to lock them all up in in kind of contraptions and change everything and dump them in lakes and he'd get out out of everything. He told his wife, I heard Andre Crouch, the great magician at Campus Crusade when I was in college. He used to go around doing uh, all kinds of neat magic shows and presenting the gospel. And Andre had traced that history very carefully. And Houdini said, he told his wife, if anybody can escape the clutches of death, then I can do it. And I want you to meet a certain time every year. If I can escape, then I'm going to get in contact with you. And his wife met year after year after year. But guess what? When Houdini died... He died, he died, he died. Didn't come back again. Never made contact. In fact, any contact that you get with that kind of a thing, you're not getting contact with the dead. You're getting contact with the bad side of the spirit world. And that's a very real thing. But it's not something you want to mess around with. But Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus rose again. What does it mean he's the firstborn? It means that when he rose again, he was given a transformed, eternal non-corruptible body. And boy, we need that. Amen? Isn't it great all of us one day are going to be given that new body? Man, I'm really thankful for that. And it's going to last forever and ever and ever. How do we know that? Because Jesus is a faithful witness and he's the firstborn from the dead. He already has his new body. 
He's already the eternal one. Because he has that truthfulness and that validity, and he's already in that existence, and we can trust him that he can take us there. He's got one other name here. He's a faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the ruler of the king of the earth. Do you think the ruler of the earth believe that? They know that? I don't think so yet. When you go to the United Nations, they don't pray in Jesus' name yet. They pray in just about every name of God imaginable, but they don't pray in Jesus' name. But the book of Revelation has shown us that ultimately, Jesus is at the throttle. Jesus is at the control of planet Earth. Mary showed me a thing in the Dallas Morning News. They were talking about pastors that were praying at the Dallas City Council, and often, you know, we bring out some negative examples from the media. This was a positive thing. They had an interview with several pastors. There was a big hullabaloo about these guys that were praying in Jesus' name before the city council. And those dear pastors said, if a Jewish rabbi comes in here, they can pray what they want to pray. If a Hindu comes in here, they can pray what they want to pray. If an Islamic person comes here, they can pray in Allah's name. But we are ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we pray, we're going to declare what we believe. And that is that Jesus is the intermediary between heaven and earth. And we're going to pray in Jesus' name. Amen? That's great. That's what the book of Revelation is about. It's declaring his kingdom here upon earth. And whether we realize it or not, Jesus is the king. He's the Lord of the king of the earth. What does that mean? It means that when you're at work and it feels like you're caught up in that impersonal, mechanistic control thing, you feel like, man, just big corporations are just grinding you up. And some of you, and my heart just goes out for you, like I've been praying with some guys and everybody around them is getting laid off. You know, they've been with companies. Some of my friends have been with companies for 15, 20 years, some of them even longer, and just suddenly they have their stuff handed to them in a box. Man, that's a scary thing. You can feel like you're just caught up in this impersonal, grinding world of, of, of American capitalism. Where is it ever going to lead? Isn't it great to know that Jesus is the king? And he's my savior. And so if he shuts down one means of support for me, he's put me in a big family of believers that's going to minister to me, is going to help me, and I can trust him to meet my needs. Isn't that great to know that? He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He's in charge of the rulers on planet Earth. In fact, this whole book, that's going to be the plot line of this entire book. It's going to be the story of how God the Father, through the Spirit, causes his Son to come back and without question vanquishes all of his enemies. John says this, To him who loves us, that's to Jesus, the one who loved us, he's freed us from our sins by his blood. There's the gospel. Jesus loves us, He frees us from our sins by his blood. Blood stands for the violent sacrifice that he made in Calvary. And what has he done? He's made us to be a kingdom. We are, you today, are God's kingdom. You're under his authority. And therefore, you're priests. And therefore, your life is to be, you're to serve God, even the Father, and you're to give him glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Incredible. What is John the Apostle saying? Do you realize every single one of you that have received Jesus as your Savior, you're God's kingdom? What does that mean? Well, Satan has his kingdom. In Satan's kingdom, there's oaths of allegiance. In Satan's kingdom, you obey certain dictates that he makes out. In God's kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom, the authority base changes. And every one of us decide every single day which kingdom we're going to live in. 
The book of Revelation draws the line really strongly. You can be in Satan's kingdom, you can join with him, or you can be in Jesus' kingdom, you can join with him. But you can't stand in between. It's got to be one or the other. Very important choice. It says also that you've been made to be a priest. Something I want you to think about. Whenever you do something, like every once in a while, there's been some times where something will happen. They say, well, you know, Dave and Mary, you really wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't really want to go there. You don't really want to come with us in that. What are we saying? The minister isn't going to want to do that. You ever think about that? The minister is not going to want to do that. I got news for every one of you that know Jesus is your Savior. Guess what? I'm not the minister. Guess what? Every one of you are the ministers. Do you understand that? The youngest child that knows Jesus is their savior is a priest. And if the spirit of God speaks to them and gives them illumination through his word, then I need to listen to them. I've often used illustrations where Janae, even when she was just a little girl, would teach me and confront me because she's a priest. And every one of you adults, some of you say, well, man, you know, I've received Jesus as my Savior. I just want to go into that. If you've received Jesus as your Savior, you're a priest. And everywhere you go throughout this area, you are a servant of God. I want you to think about that this week. That's what the book of Revelation is saying. Jesus declared you by his blood and the forgiveness that he provided for you. You are in the ministry. If someone says, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm in the ministry. Because you are. It's saying that right here. They say, you know, when were you ordained? Right here, Revelation chapter 1 says, I am a priest. And my goal in life, what does a priest do? A priest glorifies God. A priest serves God. A priest represents God. A priest declares the message of God. I want every one of you to know that that's what you need to do. Now, why do we need to do that? Because John tells us right at the very beginning of the book how the whole thing's going to end. You know, some writers like to keep everything, you know, kind of up in the air. You don't know how it's going to end up. But what John's writing about is so important. It's so strategic. He just can't. He just can't. Can't wait to tell us how it's going to end.